Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse number 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Make sure you're woke. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. At this point in this series on the in the book of Matthew, we've reached the part that we commonly know and refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, as Ella reminded us earlier, first started out by giving the Beatitudes, the blessings of the kingdom. He would say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Then after that, we move from looking at the blessings or the character of the kingdom to the greater righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So last week, we looked at greater righteousness. This week, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, we look at greater rewards. Jesus makes the interpretation of these verses very easy for us. In verse number 1, he lays out his thesis statement. He gives us his main idea or main point in verse number one. So we begin this study of verses one through 18 with a principle. Here's the principle in verse one. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. That's what this entire section is about. Jesus begins with an imperative in verse number one, a command. He says, beware, which means to take care, to pay careful attention to. We ought to pay careful attention to how we practice our righteousness. Specifically, we are not to practice our righteous deeds or our personal devotion in order to be seen by other people. Jesus says we are not to practice our spiritual disciplines in order to impress other people, to be noticed by other people, to be recognized by other people. We are not to practice our righteousness in order to gain human approval. Oh, I think I'm in the right place this morning because I think one of the greatest addictions in the church to that is the addiction of approval. We want other people to approve of us, to accept us, and we will compromise our morals, our character, our values in order to be approved by others. It has been said, the Westminster Confession says, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think there's a corollary uh, question to be asked, what is the greatest temptation of man to glorify himself? And so Jesus knows that the temptation of man is to glorify himself, to give himself the credit and honor. And so he helps us here in these 18 verses of chapter 6 to deal with our great temptation. He wants to free us from the addiction of human approval. Don't seek the praise of men but desire the approval which comes from God. That's the whole sermon. We could pack up and leave now, but I got to let you get your money's worth. <laughs> Jesus makes it clear 
That when we practice our righteousness for human approval, that human approval then becomes our reward. That reward is an earthly, temporary, fleeting reward. And when we seek the reward here on earth, we forfeit the greater reward that comes from our Father who is in heaven. That reward that is eternal, permanent, and lasting. So that's the principle of this section. Jesus now gives us three examples on how we should practice our righteousness. So we move from the principle to the practices. The practices. The first practice that he gives an example of is that of giving. And each of these three examples, giving, practicing, giving, fasting, and praying, Jesus states the practice in the negative, then he follow it, follows it with how we should do it in the positive. The first example deals with almsgiving. We, we would call almsgiving benevolence. It, it, these are financial gifts that are given to support the poor and the needy. This was common in the ancient world. I want us to see here, before we go too fast, that in these three examples, Jesus never argues if we should be doing them. He, he assumes that all religious people are doing these acts. The issue in chapter 6 is not if we should be doing them, but rather how we should be doing them. These acts. So with almsgiving, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who sound the trumpet before them in the synagogues and in the streets. I'm just telling you, if I were one of these people who Jesus was talking about, I'd be ready to fight Jesus. <laughs> Calling me a hypocrite. Them fighting words right there. We got to remember, a hypocrite was a play actor. They wore uh, uh, multiple masks to play their different roles. And so they would put on one mask, play that role, take off that mask, put on another mask, and play a different role. And Jesus uses this term hypocrite most likely to refer to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus makes it clear that when they practiced their righteousness, they were merely performing. All they wanted was the applause of men. And Jesus says they have received their reward. So Jesus says that's the negative side of it. Let me give you the positive side of it. He, he shows his disciples in verse 3. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing said that, so that your giving may be in secret. And I know you're probably wanting some deep historical context about left hand and right hand, but I think simply what Jesus is doing here is using hyperbolic figurative type language to say that we don't need to let others know what we are doing when we are giving. Our giving should be done in secret. Now, let me help us here because Jesus uses this phrase in secret time and time again. Remember, that in all of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is after the heart. 
the motive. So when Jesus says in secret, he is not condemning public acts of righteousness. He's after the motive, the heart. So when Jesus says give in secret, he says when, when, when we give in secret, our Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, for the third time, this idea of reward has been stated by Jesus already. And you may be wondering, Pastor, tell me, what I, tell me what my reward will be in heaven. And that's a great question, church, to which I have no answer for you. The Bible does not go to great lengths to explain what these rewards are. It remains somewhat of a mystery. So rather than speculate, we have to live in the tension of not knowing completely. So that's the example of giving. From giving, he now moves to the example of praying, beginning in verse number five. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Notice that Jesus says about these religious people who he calls hypocrites, not that they love to pray, but they love to stand and be seen. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Their heart is not right. Rather, in verse 6, he says to those who follow him, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Again, let's remember that it is the motive that Jesus is teaching on. If we are too literalistic in our interpretation, we will think that Jesus is concerned about the location of prayer. But that's not the case. Because if that were the case, Jesus would be breaking his own command because he prayed in public. So, so this is really not about the location. It's about the motive of the heart. His problem was that the hypocrites were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And he wants his people to do the right things for the right reasons. So then Jesus take this moment, beginning in verse number 7, to teach them how to pray when they're in their inner room. Verse 7, he says, And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. When Jesus says, don't, don't heap up empty phrases, that word, that, 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 those words, empty phrases in the Greek, means to say the same words over and over again. Obviously, the Gentiles, the pagans, thought that their verbosity, the number of words used when praying, would get God to listen. And, and Jesus says, that ain't the case at all. Don't be like them in thinking that your acts will inform God of something he didn't already know. Don't think that your many words will, will manipulate God into acting on your behalf. Jesus said, don't be like that because your father already knows what you need before you ask. He already knows, but whoa, whoa, preacher. 
I know, I know there, there's somebody in the room on this live stream saying, why pray if God already knows? It actually is a good question. Here, let me give you a few reasons. First of all, we pray out of obedience. Prayer is commanded of believers throughout Scripture. So prayer is an act of obedience. Secondly, we pray as an expression of our faith. When we pray, we go to God because we believe that he's able to answer whatever the request may be. We go to him because we believe that he cares about us. We go to him because we believe that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. One of my favorite things to say is to hear is that my God is able. And that's what somebody in this room needs to hear this morning is that your God is able. Depression, God is able. Anxiety, God is able. Finances, God is able. Sickness, God is able. A pandemic, God is able. He's able. We go to him. Yes, he will. Because we believe that without God, nothing is impossible. Someone once asked me, dude, why do you think such and such will really change? And I reminded them, I have to believe that even this person, as awful as they are, I have to believe they changed because I believe in a Bible that teaches a virgin birth. I have to believe that God can change them because I believe in a God that created something out of nothing. I have to believe that God can change anybody because I believe that God raises people from the dead. And if God can do those things, then he's able to handle whatever we may be going through. So we pray, secondly, because God is able. It's an act of faith. Thirdly, prayer acknowledges who we really are, dependent. We pray because in praying, we acknowledge that we are not self-sufficient beings, we depend on him for our sustenance. Prayer acknowledges that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So those are a few reasons why we ought to pray, even knowing that God already knows. So then beginning in verse number nine, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Verses nine through 13 are known to us as the Lord's Prayer. And I've told you before that really it should be called the model prayer. I'm convinced that the Lord's prayer is found in John chapter 17. Go read it sometime. Now, I'm going to disappoint a handful of you because I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through each line of this prayer. I've already preached messages on this before, so if you want more teaching on these verses, I encourage you to go back through our catalog of sermons um, online and find the ones from our series on prayer. I want to just make a few observations and comments about this prayer. This prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray with a two-part structure. The first part of the prayer deals with the heavenly realities or kingdom realities. The second part deals with with earthly needs. 
Let's look at it. The first part begins with an, with an ad, address, our Father in heaven, which is full about hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me make a few observations and comments. First, Jesus reminds us that God the Father is our Father. A couple of implications. Number one, we are children of God. This reminds us that we have been adopted into the family of God. The fatherhood of God may be the greatest privilege of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God is our father, so he has a parental concern for his children. And we'll hear more about that next week. So Jesus then moves from our father in heaven to three requests. He prays your name or hallowed be your name. I translate that when I read it in the Greek as your name be sanctified. To be sanctified is to be set apart. This is a request that his name not be profaned and will be treated as holy. Then he says, your kingdom come. That is a request for the kingdom of heaven to come in full. It's been inaugurated with the coming of Christ, but we see it now in part, not in whole. This prayer is a request that his reign and his rule will come over the entire earth. Then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a request that righteousness on earth be just as it is in heaven. It, in, in heaven, the Lord's will is done perfectly and immediately. So Jesus here in these three requests teaches his disciples to begin their prayers by focusing on the kingdom before their own needs. The kingdom is to be our first priority in prayer. Only after that should we make our earthly requests known to God. He teaches his disciples pray and give us this day our daily Bread. In other words, we need to trust him to provide our daily needs. Not only do we need bread, but we also need forgiveness. We need to be forgiven of our ongoing sins. And we ask for his forgiveness in the same way that we forgive those who are in debt to us. And then finally, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's protection. We need him to not lead us into testing and trials. We need him to rescue us or deliver us from evil and the evil one. This is how we ought to pray. And Jesus reminds his disciples in verses 14 and 15 that forgiveness in, in heaven works in tandem with forgiveness on earth. If we don't forgive others, then neither will our Father forgive us. Our unforgiveness of others gives evidence, child of God, that we don't fully appreciate and understand the forgiveness that God offers and gives to us. Here's the principle that I think we ought to take from this. 
interpersonal relationships matter to the father among his children. Interpersonal relationships matter to God the Father among his children. The Father expects his children to be merciful to one another. To be merciful means to not give people what they really deserve. Is that not what God has done for us? Is, has God not been merciful to us rather than giving us the, 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 the wrath that we deserve? He, took, he withheld that from us and sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die our death, to die in our place, to be our substitute, and the wrath of God was poured on Jesus rather than us. That's mercy. Jesus says to us, as God has been merciful to you, so you ought to be merciful to one another. What would the church look like if we were merciful? What would the church look like if we didn't seek revenge when we were wronged? What would our homes look like if we were more merciful? What would our world look like if Christians Christians, not the world, if Christians were more merciful. Final example, fasting. The final example is found in verse 16. And this is the example of fasting. Really no new information here. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who make it known that they are practicing their righteousness by fasting. They disfigure their faces. Oh, What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm just fasting. <laughs> you said, don't do that. Wash your face. I just helped some parent in this room. Jesus said, wash your face. <laughs> Anoint your head. We should not practice our righteousness in order to be seen. Jesus says the same thing. I want to call to your attention to one thing. I just thought this was fascinating. And that Jesus says in verse 18, don't be like them. Rather, fast so that you may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. What we heard before was who sees in secret. But twice already in verse 6 and here, he says, your father who is in secret. Jesus confirms for us that God is definitely omnipresent. He is everywhere. But furthermore, Jesus is also telling us that God is hidden in the sense that he is invisible because God is spirit. So Jesus teaches us that God is able to see in secret because he himself is in secret. And because he sees in secret, he will reward our righteous acts that are done from a pure heart. So what are we to take from this? First of all, I want us to notice that in these 18 verses, several times, Jesus uses possessive pronouns before the term father. He uses words like your father. 
And in the prayer, the model prayer, he says, our Father. And the simple question, here's the first point of application is, is God your Father? See, we live in an age and time now where people think that, that God is everybody's Father. And that is not the teaching of Scripture. God is not the father of everybody. He is the creator of everyone, but he's not the father of everyone. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So who is, who is a child of God? Who can call God their father? Only those who have believed in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have not believed in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin, you're not a child of God. But the good news is, God extends his grace and his mercy to you this morning so that you will hear the good news that you can be rescued from his holy and just wrath by believing in his son, Jesus Christ, who took your place on the cross, who died for your sin. And that same Jesus, he really died because he was buried in the grave. And here's the really good news, that that same Jesus who died and was buried, didn't stay dead, didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the grave with all power in his hands. And why do we get excited about the resurrection? One, because we know that the resurrection tells us that God accepted this perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. But we also get excited because when Jesus died and went into the grave, he gave the death blow to death, sin, and Satan. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Why does the resurrection matter? Because it reminds us, this ain't Easter yet, but I feel it in my spirit. The resurrection reminds us that we don't have to fear this enemy called death or we don't have to fear this enemy called Satan. Jesus has already defeated him. And because I'm in Jesus and Jesus in me, I have that same victory. Oh, I wish I had me some help in here to get excited about the fact that we are victorious. The resurrection matters. But we get excited about the resurrection, too, because we know that this life and the grave is not the end of the story. Because one day Jesus is going to come back and the trumpet is going to sound. And those who are dead in Christ, hey, 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 we're going to rise. Y'all took too long. I'm done now. So that's the question. If God is God your father. But I think that's a question not just for unbelievers, but that's a question for believers as well. Because if God is your father, my question for you this morning is, why worry? If God is your father, why are you anxious? If God is your father, 
Why don't you talk to him a little more? We used to sing a song in the church where I grew up in. We used to say, let's have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him, don't, don't do that. Tell him all about our troubles. He'll hear our faintest cry. And guess what? Here's the good news. He'll answer by and by. And then we just start singing two words. This, this was the little chorus. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right, all right, all right, all right. Even though you may be in the fiery furnace, it's all right. It's all right. Even though you may have the diagnosis, it's all right. If you talk to the Father, it's all right, all right, all right. Is God your Father? Live like it. Next application. When you do your righteous deeds, do it from a pure heart. That's the message of Jesus Christ. In this text. Second, thirdly, let's not seek human approval and praise, but desire the approval that comes from God the Father. Worship team, come on back. I think another one is when you pray, and this one was conviction in my heart. When you pray, the kingdom has to be the priority. So often when we pray, it's so quick just to say, God, I need you to do this, I need that, and I need this, and I need that. Jesus teaches us that when we pray, the kingdom should be our first priority. And as we make the kingdom our priority, the first thing we ought to do is to acknowledge the king of that kingdom, our father, who is in heaven. Your name be sanctified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is the word from the Lord.